Hi, and welcome to Failurology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Welcome to our 11th mini failure episode. That's a lot of mini failure episodes. I know, so exciting. We're bringing you engineering failures in bite-sized pieces. Make no mistake, these are still significant failures, but they either have pretty straightforward causes or not enough information for a full episode. Essentially, we have a list of failures we want to tell you about, but haven't been able to dig up enough information to talk about them for a full 45-minute episode. These episodes are also just the failure, no news, and no ads. For now, at least. It's like failureology light. This week's mini-failure is about the Standard Oil building in Chicago, Illinois, that was built by the Standard Oil Company. The Standard Oil building is located at 200 East Randolph Street in Chicago, it was built by Standard Oil in 1974 and changed to the Amoco building when they changed their name in 1985. It was renamed to the Aon Center in 1999. Aon is a British-American financial firm that has its U.S. headquarters in the building, as well as the co-headquarters of Kraft Heinz, which is also headquartered in Pittsburgh. The Standard Oil building, or the Aon building now, or Aon Center, is the fourth tallest building in downtown Chicago. The Aon Center is south of the Chicago River, just inland from Lake Michigan if you ever travel to Chicago. It's north of Millennium Park where Cloud Gate is located. That big mirror thing that looks like a kidney bean and uh, probably caused some, some issues to at least one or two per- people's cars. Have you been to Chicago, Brian? I have been to Chicago. Have you been to Chicago? I've been to Chicago a few times. I actually took the train from Detroit to Chicago, which was Ooh, my train first tangent. time. I know, which was my first time on Amtrak, and it was so much fun. I loved it. Did it arrive on time, or did it arrive, like, the next day? No, on time. I think it was, like, six-hour train ride. Okay. But there was a there was a food cart, and we could get drinks, and the internet worked, and you got to see all these, like, weird... Well, weird's not the right word, but you kind of like go through all these little towns and industrial areas, and then along rivers and through forests, and it was really cool just looking out the window and seeing all these different parts of Michigan and Illinois on the way there. It was really exciting. I really liked it. I have actually also taken the Amtrak train to Chicago, but I went from Boston to Chicago on the Amtrak train. Oh, how long was that? Uh, I think it was six hours, nine hours. It, it, it took a while. We, uh, we had a, I feel like a 45 minute stop, maybe an hour stop in Albany when the Customs and Border Protection Services people came onto the train. Which was a little nerve-wracking for me because I, I just finished a giant hike, so I had a giant beer. So I did not look at all like what my passport picture looked like. So I think it took a little bit longer than six hours. I feel like it wasn't overnight, though. I know, but Boston's really far from Chicago. Like, Detroit is, is a five-hour drive from Chicago, and that's about how long it took. So that's what I'm guessing. You know, um, it's about a 15-hour drive from Boston to Chicago. So I would guess that the train ride is somewhere around that amount of time. I feel like I didn't spend overnight on the train. Maybe I did spend overnight on the train. That was back in that was back in 2012, though. So that was that was 10 years ago. That's like a whole lifetime ago. You were also probably really excited to be on the train, and it just probably the time just flew. Oh, that could have been. I, I just looked this up as we were recording. So uh, the Amtrak train from Chicago to Boston. So the the other direction. Um, it says it's 22 hours and 41 minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot longer than six. Just just a few longer than six. Yeah. Anyways, I've gone to that kidney bean. I never knew it was called Cloudgate. I call it the big mirror thing where everyone takes pictures. I didn't know it had a different name, but it does. It's actually a really cool attraction. I mean, it sounds kind of 
dumb, to be honest. Uh, but it's actually kind of cool because you, since it's like a kidney bean, you can go underneath it. So it's kind of like almost like a C shape. And so you can walk underneath it, but it's all mirror. So you can kind of look up and take your picture, take a picture of yourself reflected back out of the the kidney bean thing, um, which is pretty cool. And it's, yeah, it's a pretty big tourist attraction. So there's always lots of people there taking pictures, um, at least pre-COVID. I haven't been there since COVID started. I haven't been to the States actually for quite some time, but I've definitely been to CloudGate. I recommend checking it out. Also, it's in this really, really nice and big park that's got a lot of other cool things. And it's really, really close to downtown. Well, it's, it's part of downtown, but it's close to uh, Michigan Ave where there's lots of shopping and um, you can access it really easily off the L, which is their elevated train. Another train tangent for that one too. Like that train as well. Yeah, I like Chicago. I've been there a few times. It's really nice. And they turn the river green on St. Patrick's Day. So who wouldn't like a city like that? The river's kind of green anyways. I don't think it's a huge stretch. I wouldn't swim in it. Don't swim in the river. I wouldn't swim in the river either. Yeah, but I will say since the river flows through downtown and there's lots of cool little canals, there's a lot of really cool boat tours that you can take. So I've taken a couple architectural boat tours where they bring you around and they talk about all the different buildings and how they were built and and different funky characteristics about them. So like for example, Batman was filmed in one of them, so they pointed that out to us, which was really cool. Uh, there's another building that's built over top of uh, one of the railways, one of the cargo railways. I'm not sure what rail line it is, but the building had to buy basically air rights to be able to uh, build itself above the train tracks, uh, which is really cool. That was the first time I'd heard about air rights. So that was really exciting. And then there's lots of really cool buildings. I would say, you know, as much as as much as New York is really, really cool and it has a lot of cool buildings and lots of cool stuff to see, I would say Chicago's offers a lot of the same things, but is less touristy and less expensive. It's a lot more attainable, I think, which is why I like Chicago so much. Uh, plus, it's only a three hour flight from Calgary, which is also super convenient. I think I like New York more than Chicago because the pizza in New York is better. Yes, very different pizzas. Oh, boy, don't offend anybody yes new york has that really really thin pizza that you basically can fold in half the slices are a size of your head and then chicago deep dish pizza is really really thick and a lot of cheese so much cheese uh, and the toppings all get layered and it gets baked in this big deep dish pan and you think you're really really hungry and maybe you where you'd normally order a large and then you eat two slices and you're like oh my god i'm never eating again i'm so full i thought i would like Chicago deep dish pizza the first time I had authentic Chicago deep dish pizza mostly because I really like lasagna and pizza and I was just not a fan of Chicago deep dish pizza oh I really liked it but I do find it very heavy my typical go-to style is more of the thinner crust pizza so it, New York does work better for that but I mean okay if you go to Chicago you have to try the pizza but if you take the pizza out of the equation I, I like Chicago over New York that's my preference though that's fair. That's that's reasonable. Check out both cities. They're great. I like going there. Both of them. Yes. So the only three buildings that were taller in Chicago at the time of construction are the Willis Tower, also known as the Sears Tower. That's the I feel like the iconic Art Deco style tower that everyone thinks of when they when they think of Chicago. The Trump Hotel and St. Regis are the only ones that are taller than the Aeon Tower. So when the Standard Oil Tower was completed, it was the fourth tallest building in the world, um, which earned it the nickname of Big Stan. I guess for big standard oil. 
Yeah, which is actually really cool to think about. I mean, I mean, the building's huge, but, you know, this building wasn't really built that long ago. It's built like within our lifetime. But, you know, at one point it was the fourth tallest building in the world. And now it's I'm not sure exactly where it lands on the list, but it's it's definitely not the tallest. So, so many skyscrapers and superstructures have gone up since then, which is which is interesting. Some of them are a bit excessive, if you ask me. Why do you need to be up that high? I don't understand. Not a fan of heights. We've talked about this. Which I think is kind of amusing because Nicole works on these massive, tall residential and commercial towers doing HVAC design and testing on-site related things. Yeah, true. Uh, Most of the buildings I work on, though, like 35 is kind of the tallest that I usually deal with. A lot of times they're around 20. I also do a lot of four stories. But, you know, I don't go up and stand on the edge and look over. I stay way far back. But the towers are fun because you've got a lot of different pressure characteristics and you've got a bunch of different loads that you need to deal with. And so schematically, there's a lot of interesting things going on in the building. And I think they're, you know, the project's large enough that you can really kind of sink your teeth into it. Like a, a restaurant or a tenant fit out, those are fun projects for sure, but they're smaller. And so it's hard to really get super into it on the construction side. Whereas these tall buildings, you know, they take two, three years to build. And so you really get to, you get to know everybody and you work well on a team. And usually the industry is, is big, but it's not. And so you see a lot of the same people on different projects and yeah, I like towers. I think they're fun. Speaking of tall, the Standard Oil building had 83 floors and it was 346 meters tall. And the Standard Oil building was designed by Edward Durrell Stone and Perkins and Will. I believe Perkins and Will is still around. That's definitely a name I've heard of, although perhaps they've been bought out. But uh, Edward Durrell Stone is not, not, not a name I recognize. I mean, that said, I haven't done work in Chicago. So um, I actually hear Chicago is quite challenging to do design work in because the climate is really, really challenging to deal with because it's right on the lake so you get a lot of lake effect and a lot of humidity uh you get hot summers cold winters lots of snow um so that's that's really interesting what are the ground characteristics like like is there a lot of limestone in chicago or is there a lot of good bedrock or i i've never done really any work or climbing out that way same i'm not really sure i i think if i remember from the architectural boat tour I don't think they go too far underground. So I think I think they may have like a basement level, but I don't think, you know, in Calgary, sometimes we'll have six levels of underground parkade that are all below the main floor. I don't think you see that in Chicago. I think they go a couple levels and then if they need more parking, it's usually above ground. So like they'll have the main floor retail and then they'll have parking for a couple levels above that and then they'll start with office or residential or whatever else they're doing for the tower. Oh, interesting. I, I actually quite like underground parking in buildings. Same. It keeps your car nice and warm. This is true. So in 2018, plans were unveiled for a rooftop observatory with the world's tallest exterior elevator and a new entrance pavilion. Ooh, I like all three of those things. Like rooftop observatory. Yep. An exterior elevator. That's always cool. I, I assume it would be like a big glass elevator on the outside there. Yeah, that, that seems like a lot of fun. You know, you tried to talk me into riding one of those when we did the CN Tower episode, and I still don't want to. I also want to say Chicago's really big for these rooftop observatories. So the Sears Tower has one, and the John Hancock Tower has one. And then when this one's complete, which it's been delayed due due to COVID, so it's 
expected to be complete in 2023 or 2024. But once this, this is complete, that's a third that they're adding to their list, which is cool because there's a lot of really cool things to see from those observatories. And they're all in different parts of downtown. So you get you get completely different views. Plus you're right on the lake. So you get a lot of really cool uh, lake views. Yeah, I've been in all. So as much as I don't like heights, I always go to the rooftop observatory. And I think the Sears Tower has a glass floor. And actually, just on the rooftop observatory thing, I, um, I feel like a lot of new residential towers that are being put up, certainly in Calgary and I assume in other places in the world, the roof is being utilized a lot more as a as a common ground or a common space and kind of as a, as a point where people can can see the rest of the city. So I think it's really cool that uh, instead of just throwing a whole bunch of, uh, you know, HVAC and mechanical things on top of the roof, um, that it's actually being used as a functional surface for things. Yeah, I agree. They're pretty cool. So also interesting tidbit about the Standard Oil building. It uses a construction method or a structural design method that's similar to the former World Trade Center in New York City. They have a tubular steel frame structural system uh, with V-shaped perimeter columns to resist earthquakes, reduce sway, and minimize column bending. So if you look at pictures, the standard oil building has those what look like vertical lines on the outside of the building, which has a very similar aesthetic to the World Trade Center. My understanding of this design method is that it moves a lot of the structure to the exterior walls, which reduces the number of interior columns and then in turn increasing floor space. The Citicorp building that we covered in episode one has a similar concept, uh, but on that building, the exterior does look quite a bit different. They used a diagrid pattern instead of the vertical elements. So you get kind of this crisscrossing, a lot of diagonal lines on the exterior as opposed to the vertical lines. But that was kind of something that drew me, you know, right away when looking at the standard oil building in pictures, I immediately thought, hmm, that looks a lot like the World Trade Center. I wonder if they've used a similar design. And then I dug into it a little bit and turns out that they did, which I thought was pretty cool. So why are we all here? What happened? What went wrong in this building? We've talked a lot about really cool things that the building had, different features that it had, lots of things we like about Chicago, pizza, trains, etc. But why are we here? What, what went wrong with this tower? So when it was complete, it was the tallest marble-clad building in the world. There were 43,000 slabs of Italian Carrera marble on the outside of this building. But there were problems with the marble. So the marble was thinner. It was about three and a half centimeters thick. And it was thinner than typically used for building cladding. It would have been much lighter, which is why they used a thinner slab. But this turned out to be a pretty big mistake. So on December 25th, 1973, yes, Christmas Day, a 160-kilogram marble slab fell off of the building and landed on the nearby Prudential Center, penetrating the roof. Not good. A 1985 inspection found several cracks and bowing of the marble cladding. As an interim solution, they added stainless steel straps to keep the marble in place and prevent it from landing on pedestrians and buildings nearby, which I think was a really smart move. You know, you... You can't just reclad a building overnight, but you've got to do something to keep it in place so that it doesn't land on anybody. That's, I mean, that's really, really dangerous. You have to close the streets, the sidewalks. You have to basically evacuate buildings nearby. So installing the stainless steel straps allowed them to, it, it bought them some time to come up with, with another solution so that they could actually address this problem. Further testing revealed that the marble panels uh, that Nicole mentioned had lost about 40% of their original strength after 16 years of heat cool cycles. Then accelerated lab testing found the panels could lose 70% of 
of their original strength after 26 years of exposure. So they're they're not trending in the right direction on um, the strength of these Marvel panels. No. Also, I think it's important to mention, you know, Chicago's in the northern U.S. They get pretty pretty bad winters. They get lots of snow, lake effect. They're right on Lake Michigan. But then they also get really hot summers. And they also have, you know, quite high humidity. So, you know, you do get a lot of heat cool cycles. You do get a lot of extreme temperatures that these panels and their mounting brackets would be going through. So this doesn't jump out as a huge surprise that they had this type of issue. I think you have to be very particular about the materials that you use in this type of climate. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I've certainly watched some Chicago Bears football games um, where the weather has been very, very cold and snowy, and they've had to clear off the the hash marks so they could actually see where the where the yardage marks were for football games, and then certainly in the in the summer for I've gone to a couple of Cubs games where it's been thirty degrees Celsius and super humid. So yeah, there, there's a there's a very extreme temperature cycle that that happens in Chicago, especially with with all the humidity that's there being right on the lake as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the testing that we're talking about, um, combined with the structural analysis, found that the panels couldn't support design wind loads with the reduced strength. And if you've ever been to Chicago, like we've said, it's right on Lake Michigan, and it can be really, really, really windy. Really windy. They don't call it the Windy City for nothing. True, true. Yeah, that's its nickname. Especially, you know, this building is right on the lake. So you're not inland a little bit. You're not in the midst of downtown. You're not protected by other buildings around you. You're you're pretty much right on the lake. I think there are a couple blocks from the lakefront. So from 1990 to 1992, uh, the entire building was reclad with 44,000 panels of five centimeter thick white granite from Mount Airy in North Carolina at a total cost of over $80 million or equivalent to $170 million today. And over half the price of the entire original building construction, even without adjustments for inflation. So this was a really, really pricey refit a recladding of this building. They did sell it in the 90s or the early 2000s and they made a they made a good profit on it. I don't think I think I think, you know, over time they made that money back. This is the this is the original marble that they had on the on the building that they sold? No, no, I mean they sold the building. Oh, sold the building. Okay. Yeah. But they sold it for something like 600 and something million dollars. So, yeah, they spent 80 million. Not good. This is bad. But, you know, I I don't think they were in the hole for that whole amount. I think over time, they eventually made it back. So most of the discarded marble that they took off the building, it was crushed and used as landscaping decoration. Some of it was donated to Governor State University and University Park, and the rest was given to the Illinois Department of Rehabilitative Services to be carved into gifts and mementos such as desk clocks and pen holders. Also really, really interesting. So the marble was the same type used to build the first Canadian place in Toronto in 1975. And during an intense storm on May 15th, 2007, a piece of marble panel fell off of that building on the southern face and landed on a third floor mezzanine roof below. In 2012, the owners of First Canadian Place also decided to replace their entire facade. So they learned from the Standard Oil building. They thought, oh, we don't want to, we don't want the same thing to happen to us. And so once they had an issue with a section of marble, they decided to preemptively replace all of their facade as well, which of course I think was a very good idea. Uh, But I just thought it was interesting that, you know, two similar era buildings had a similar material, similar, you know, 
Toronto's also right on the lake. It's right on Lake Ontario. It also has, a, it, honestly, coming from southwestern Ontario myself, I can confirm that Toronto and Chicago both have pretty similar climates. And so, again, I'm not I'm not super surprised. If anything, I'm surprised that the the cladding, the marble cladding in Toronto took so long to have issues because it lasted from 1975 to 2007. Uh, whereas the Standard Oil building had issues during original construction. Yeah, so I'm kind of surprised the Toronto one took as long as it did, if I'm being honest. So there you have it. Maybe attaching heavy marble slabs to the exterior of a building isn't the best idea. The marble slabs lost 40% of their OG strength after 16 years of heating and cooling cycles in the challenging climate of Chicago and Toronto. Thanks for listening to this mini failure episode. For our regular episodes, check out Failureology wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failureology. You can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us right in the Patreon app. There are links to all of these in the show notes. Bye, everyone. Talk soon.